Hey everyone, you're listening to Yap Snacks, a series of bite-sized content hosted by me, Hala Taha. In today's Yap Snacks, we're gonna get you geared up and in the mindset to crush your New Year's resolutions. 2023 is just a few weeks away, Yap Bam. It's around the corner. And so this is the perfect podcast to listen to before you decide on your big 2023 goals. This episode features four times New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink, the legendary coach of the stars, Dr. Jeff Spencer, Wharton professor and behavioral economist, Katie Milkman, as well as bestselling author and story brand CEO, Donald Miller. Now to get you warmed up on this topic, let's hear from Daniel Pink on why you need to take action to begin with. There's a big difference between regrets of action and regrets of inaction. Everything comes back to that difference. And the architecture of regret, the difference between regrets of action I regret what I did and regrets of inaction. I regret what I didn't do is huge. And here there is a distinct difference in age. In my American regret project, which is a giant public opinion poll, I put together such a large sample in order to try to find demographic differences in what people regretted. So thinking that whites would have different from, uh, regrets from people of color, people with lo- lots of formal education would have different regrets from people with less education. Men would have different regrets from women, blah, blah, blah. There were very few demographic differences. I was kind of shocked by that. But the one had to do with age, and it's this. People in their 20s tended to have equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction, equal numbers of regrets about what they did and regrets about what they didn't do. But by the time you hit basically your late 20s and certainly into your 30s and 40s and 50s and beyond, it's not even close. By the time you get literally to your late 20s, the inaction regrets take over. When you get to my age, okay, and I'm basically like double the age of somebody in their mid to late 20s, when you get to my age, it's like three to one in action regrets over action regrets. Overwhelmingly, over time, we regret what we didn't do. I regret that I didn't reach out. I regret that I didn't start that business. I regret that I didn't tell that person that I loved them. I regret that I didn't stand up to an injustice. That's what we regret, inaction over action as we get older. Young and profiters, inaction regrets are choices that we didn't act on, and these regrets can even haunt us until we're lying on our deathbed. Like the old saying goes, it's better to try and fail than never try at all. Next, let's get a little bit more practical and hear from coach Dr. Jeff Spencer to gain insight on his winning formula for setting the right goals and how we can go about achieving them. A lot of us have heard of these like smart goals, but you say you have a different framework for goals. It's called the right goals. It actually stands for some things. Can you break down what a right goal is? Yeah, well, a right goal is a a goal that aligns the mind, body, and soul because it exposes itself to a variety of different questions that should be asked and answered in the affirmative if it's the right goal to uh, pursue. There's all sorts of smart goals that you shouldn't be pursuing, actually. So the R and right stands for relevant. You really need to take the time to ask yourself, is this goal really relevant to me? And and why is it relevant? Put the pen to the paper to be able to create a body of evidence as to why this is relevant. Because the relevancy creates a, a certain level of personal commitment and insistence that you do achieve the goal if you have confirmed it to be relevant. 
The next thing is uh, indicators. The I and right is indicators. There must be adequate indicators there that assure you that the goal, again, is worth pursuing. Indicators like, do I get enough notoriety coming back from this? Does this give me enough credibility? Does this provide the income that I need for me to be able to pursue this? So there's a number of indicators that we do need to name, that we do need to hold accountability for. Because again, when we have vetted this through a a purposeful process, then it allows us to have a different type of relationship to our goal. I think people have way too casual a relationship with their goal. They're not in love with it or they're not going to fight for it like they really should. The G in right stands for gravity. What is the emotional gravity and grit that the achievement of this goal avails you of? What are you going to say about yourself once you've achieved this goal? Are you going to have a greater trust in your ability to be a manifester of what your talents are and your ability to contribute to humanity? Well, if it brings that level of gravity and it gives you that type of grit, well, I certainly think that it's a goal worth pursuing. The H in right stands for humanity. I think personally that our goals need to have a big slice of humanity attached to it. Like, how is this actually impacting people, places, and things on this planet? Because if that isn't answered in the affirmative, then we just kind of don't have that level of commitment that's necessary to stay in the game and keep pushing when the goal gets tough. And then the T in right is time. Is this the right time to be pursuing the goal? Yes or no? Do you actually have the time to pursue the goal? Yes or no? Does the time from where you are to goal completion suit your sensibility? Yes or no? And if you've deliberately taken the time to scrutinize the goal that you're proposing to pursue through that line of questioning, and you've answered this in the affirmative, then you have a level of commitment within self that will absolutely 100% guarantee that you will find yourself in that winner's circle. I want to talk about what happens when we actually start taking action. You've got phases like the honeymoon phase and the daily grind phase, which you mentioned earlier. Can you talk to us about the different stages of performance and what we need to know? I feel that we need to have a clear understanding of what the different stages of progress that we will be going through from starting to pursue our goal to the achievement of our goal. The very first phase of this is what I call start. And when we get to a point where we have the preparation readiness and we know it because it's been vetted, it's extremely important that you have a thoroughly vetted and rehearsed starting procedure to make sure that you get out of the gate cleanly and you hit an early objective that confirms that goal progress is now up and running and underway. Like, let's say you take a horse in the Kentucky Derby that's favored to win. Well, if it trips out of the gate because it hasn't practiced its starting procedure, then the horse that should have won gets last. And it's exactly the same thing for us. So please make sure that you have a well-organized and rehearsed starting process that ends in a certain achievement, an objective that demonstrates that goal pursuit now is actually formally up and underway. Can you give a a concrete example of that just to be super clear? Yeah. I absolutely can. So let's say that the initiative of a goal launch would be to have our first five-figure month, $10,000. So that's the target. I mean, that's not the goal, but that's the first target because we know that if we had 10,000 a month, this is for real. It's like, we're no longer talking about this. Like, this is for real. 
and why having that target and declaring that target in advance is important is because when you hit it, it confirms that the preparation was correct. It also confirms that the leadership that created the preparation processes were correct and should be followed. It also gives the team confidence that we can actually do this. You always want to start off on a positive win that doesn't need to be big, that confirms that we're actually in process and moving forward. So once we've hit that liftoff point, then we move into what I call the honeymoon phase. And the honeymoon phase is where, okay, now we hit this liftoff. We have this confirmation. We're now at uh, you know, 10,000 a month. This means it's going to be smooth sailing to the winter circle. Well, hold on a second. It doesn't really mean that. It means that we've just gotten out of the gate smoothly. And so the honeymoon phase is that when everybody's hyper excited, then they go out and they become very sloppy and relaxed about scheduling. They don't look at their policies. They may start overspending certain things. You see this in startups all the time where they're not even making any money. And then they're going out and spending all this raise money on stuff that doesn't matter because they already think that they're in the winner's circle. So it's a complete abuse of the honeymoon. But we know that when we're in a honeymoon, there is always uh, the opportunity for reckless choices that can really hurt us. At some point, the honeymoon is going to wear off because they all do. And when the honeymoon wears off and you feel like there's a loss in momentum or enthusiasm, that doesn't mean that it's the wrong plan or you can't do it. That's supposed to happen. It means you're now living in reality. It's actually something that you actually want to see because that level of enthusiasm cannot carry you forever. It's not possible. So we need to be aware of that because we're not aware that the honeymoon is supposed to wear off when the motivation drops and we all think, oh, bad plan, bad management. Maybe I should get out while I have at least some resources left. Really bad idea, misinterpretation of the, of the uh, circumstances completely. What I will say also is that the next phase of this, once we get beyond the uh, honeymoon phase and we have our reality check where we reconcile things, we get things back on track, then we may think, well, okay, now we've made this huge correction. Now I know we can do it. Well, you kind of don't because the next thing coming is going to be the daily grind. And this is where your plan is now facing reality for the very first time. Prior to that, it's been a conjecture, a hypothesis, or a presumption, but it's never been fully tested. We know that whatever the weaknesses are in our preparation will surface during the honeymoon phase. That's what it's for. It's supposed to reveal to us what we don't know that we need to know so that we can get it. It's not a sign that we were behind or it was a bad choice, even though people will oftentimes misinterpret it as that and quit prematurely. It's something that we have to anticipate showing up. So here's the promise. In the data grind phase, if you're looking at the right metrics and you've got the right plan and you got the metrics that confirm that you're making progress, you're going to get up one day and you're going to get up and believe that you can do it. Like, you know what? I really now believe I can do it. If he can do it, then I can do it. There's no difference. But then we need to go from believing we can do it to knowing we can do it. It's different. So when I was working Dave Asbury at Bulletproof, helping him build Bulletproof, I said, look, Dave, we both believe that Bulletproof can be really big, but we need to now know that we can do it. What do we need to do, do to go from believing to knowing? said, well, we need more inventory and we need more people at the higher levels in the marketing department. I said, well, what is it going to take to do that? I said, probably a couple million dollars. I said, well, you know, you know all the guys in Silicon Valley. You go up there and raise that. Let's get this done. So he did it, got it done. 
And at that point, Dave and I both knew that uh, Bulletproof is going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which it proved itself to be. And we did kind of declare what it is that we needed to get to take us from belief to knowing. That's a really essential step here. Then there's the final step that puts us into the winner's circle. Please, everybody, listen up. Until you get to the winner's circle, you're not there yet. And if you trip before you get there and don't cross the line, then you don't win. When you see that it's possible and probable that you're going to be able to achieve your goal, don't try to speed up to try to get to the finish line faster to enjoy the chocolate cake and the champagne waiting at the finish line because it's never over until it's over. And I've seen people trip at the last second and screw things up, never to eventually get past the finish line. Please do not do that. Or don't try to control things so much thinking that you're being safe. Because sometimes when you slow things down way too much, you start to daydream. You think the safety is in the speed. It's not. If you're going too slow and you start to daydream, then you're at equal hazard as if you're going way too fast. So don't change your pace. Keep your pace. Be vigilant. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep executing what has to go right until you're way beyond the finish line. And once you're beyond the finish line, then you can celebrate in victory circle. So as long as we're aware that there are these five different steps and stages that we go through from act to pursue a goal to arrival in the winner's circle, and we can name where we are and we know what that means, then that's our safety net for sticking together and working together as a well-organized, coherent team that can get things done most efficiently and get us into the winner's circle with least time and effort and expense. I really love what Dr. Jeff Spencer is saying. Keep your eyes on the finish line and don't let up once you set out on your goal. Now, we can all be consistent, of course, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're human after all, and having a bad day or two is inevitable. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me. But do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace to help me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me. I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room, even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. (coughs) Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage, and even the did we just hit a million orders stage. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. Let's get ahead of our rainy days with a little guidance from behavioral economist Katie Milkman. We often hear about the power of positive thinking, but you, you talk about over-optimism and how we can blind ourselves and it could lead to overconfidence. And you say that anticipating and planning for obstacles can be more powerful than adopting a positive mindset. So in terms of everything that we're talking about, tell us about your perspective on the power of negative thinking. Yeah. So this is another one where I just want to say you also have to believe in yourself to get things done. So there, there is, it is important to have positive beliefs to some extent. But if you don't plan for what can go wrong, if you aren't thinking negatively and anticipating obstacles, I mean, that's sort of the the whole benefit of um, all the research that's been done on behavioral science and strategies. Because if you say this might go wrong if I don't create constraints, for example, if I don't set goals that I break down into bite-sized pieces, if I don't seek out social support or come up with a commitment device, then you are much less likely to succeed. So it is really important to set yourself up for success by doing that planning process, anticipating obstacles. And there's really wonderful work by NYU psychologist Gabrielle Ettingen on the importance of that kind of obstacle-based planning, where you think, what could go wrong? What could get in my way as I'm trying to achieve this goal? And then you say, okay, and how am I going to overcome it? And that improves results. And it's something we do, I think, naturally, right? Again, going back to engineering, it's something we do naturally when we take on certain types of work, but we don't always do it in our personal lives. We don't always do it when we're thinking about our productivity, and it's important to do it there too. It's also been called a pre-mortem. So we know what a post-mortem is, like something fails and you go, oh, what went wrong? Like, let's analyze it. But it can be really useful to do the same thing before you pursue a goal and to sit down and say, imagine this all falls apart and goes wrong what would be the reasons? What are the most obvious reasons this would go wrong? 
So that's a pre-mortem. And that's another way of thinking about planning for obstacles. And it totally makes sense because the more you plan, the more prepared you are. So that negative thinking is actually quite positive. (laughs) Exactly. One thing that I found super interesting with your work was this concept of flexibility and emergency reserves and kind of setting ourselves up to be more flexible as opposed to rigid in order to execute on our goals. So can you talk about why rigidity doesn't work? Yeah, rigidity, I will say, is something that I was initially bullish on, which probably sounds silly now that I'm putting the term rigidity to it. But when I first started thinking about habits and what we knew about habits, it seemed clear that you wanted a lot of consistency in order to build lasting habits. And so I have done research looking at whether or not it's actually better when you're building a habit to try to always do it at the same time or try to vary when you are engaging in the behavior. And I was sure that consistency would be better and surprised actually to find that it was worse. And when I sort of dug into the data I had analyzed and that I'd collected to look at this, where we'd randomly assign people to basically either engage in the behavior they were hoping to make habitual on a really consistent basis or in a more variable way, what we found is that the people who were consistent built rigid habits. So after the startup period, when we're sort of training them to to build the habit, they're decent at getting to whatever, getting to their goal in this narrow timeframe that they had had picked as their like magic time. But if they miss that window, they don't do it at all. Whereas people who had trained their habit in a more variable way, who are like, say, trying to go to the gym more consistently, and sometimes they go at 9am, sometimes they go at noon, sometimes they go at five, they also tend to go, they tend to choose a time that's optimal. And let's say half of their visits end up being at that time. And that's useful. You do want sort of a first best. But if they miss their best window, they still get around to doing it. And overall, that leads to more robust and lasting habits and better outcomes. So this led to this concept that like rigidity is something that we often characterize as consistency and we think of as good for building habits. But if it gets too consistent and too rigid, it becomes brittle and we actually won't achieve as much. And and there is some real meaningful value if you're trying to build a new habit, whether it's around learning a language and when will you practice or going to the gym or check-ins with mentees who you want to spend time with, whatever that thing is, meditation. It's important not always to do it at the same time, but to build in some variability. So because life doesn't always allow you to get to your goals at the same time, things come up and you want to be able to pivot and have a fallback plan. And that really is what builds the most lasting change. Yeah, I think the key is like always having a backup plan. Absolutely. So related to this is something you call the what the hell effect. And and basically, from my understanding, it's like, let's say you're on, on a diet and you cave, you grab the chips instead of the apple, then the rest of the day, you're going to pig out because you're like, well, what the hell? I already ruined it for the day. Absolutely. So well described. And by the way, one of the best named effects in all of psychology. Give us an example of of how we can basically have an emergency reserve to counteract us falling down this spiral of of the what the hell effect. Yeah. So you're um, you're pointing to some wonderful research by my colleague, Marissa Sharif, on the importance of actually having really tough goals. Like I'm going to try to exercise seven days this week, or I'm going to try to meditate seven days this week. You want to push yourself because tough goals are best in terms of accomplishment. However, then they create the what the hell effect as a big problem. Because if you're trying for seven days a week, you miss one day, you say, what the hell? I'm never going to hit my goal. So she came up with this very 
clever idea that I think relates to ideas used by some dieting programs, for instance, of giving yourself some like cheat days, emergency reserves. She actually thinks it's important that they be referred to as emergency reserves rather than cheats, because then you don't feel entitled to take them, but rather only allow yourself to recover when there is a true emergency. So she ran experiments showing that if you tell people, set the toughest goal, seven days a week, I'm going to aim to do this thing, but I'm going to give you two emergency reserves. If you have a miss, we'll pull out that shit, we'll call it get out of jail free, and we'll say you're still on track. If anybody uses Duolingo, you might have seen they have streak freezes. If you're like trying to build a streak of, of practicing um, the language, they'll let you have sort of this kind of emergency reserve where you freeze. It doesn't really count as a, a breakage. So you get out of jail free. And she tested this against something that's psychologically should be identical, which is let's set a wimpier goal. Instead of seven days a week, I'll try to do it five days a week. That's literally identical to seven days a week with two emergency reserves. But you see dramatically better outcomes when people are striving for that higher, tougher goal, but just giving themselves these emergency chat chits, as opposed to a wimpier goal that isn't going to push you and stretch you as much. So I think it's really interesting research. And, and we can think in our lives about where is it that we might want to push ourselves hard, but also have a way to recover when there is a misstep that doesn't lead us to throw up our hands and give up on ourselves. How can we give ourselves those emergency boundaries? In addition to planning for obstacles and utilizing the concept of emergency reserves, we also need to ruthlessly prioritize and get extreme clarity on our goals. Here's more from StoryBrand CEO Donald Miller on the importance of planning your life story and the power of saying no. We need to define what it is that you want. Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to start a company? Do you want to be an influencer? Do you want to get married? And do you want to start a family? Do you want, you know, what do we want? And we need to write those things down. And I recommend writing them down from a very interesting perspective, and that is the perspective of the end of your life. So I, and, and I give the assignment to write your eulogy, to actually write your eulogy as though people were reading it after you died and talk about the things that you have accomplished. And what that does is it, it opens a story loop in our brains. Will you get these things done? Every morning, including today, about, well, about four to five mornings a week, I read my eulogy. It's how I start my morning. And my eulogy talks about the fact that Donald Miller has lived three significant stories. One is he started a company called Business Made Simple, which became basically a college at a major university for entrepreneurs. So I have a meeting with the president of a major university here in a couple of weeks to pitch all these frameworks to be housed inside their university. Well, why do I have that meeting? I have that meeting because every morning I get up and I read that story. So every day I'm putting something on the plot. If this president says, Dom, we're not going to do this, I'm going to get a meeting with another university. But this college is going to exist. So that gives... Oh, wow. You manifested the actual college thing specifically. 100%. Yeah, wow. I wrote it down. Yeah, I wrote it. I didn't manifest it. I decided I pointed there and I went there, right? And I, mean, I don't know about manifesting. There's nothing magical about, you know, saying I'm going to eat an Oreo cookie and then you eat it. You know, that's just, that's just what you do. But it did, you know, it gave me that. The, the second is that is my family story. My, my wife and I and our daughter, Emmeline, live on 15 acres in Nashville, Tennessee. We have an event space. We're building a guest house. It's a beautiful sort of mini retreat center. And the vision several years ago that I wrote in my eulogy was that we would live in a house that serves the world, that, that thinkers come here, writers come here, entrepreneurs come here. You can't pay. It's all free. 
And a couple of weeks from now, Evan McMullen is coming. He's running for Senate in Utah. He's going to speak to a group of influencers here. A former representative from the Red Campaign is coming to meet with country music singers and the, the, the governor's office to talk about criminal justice reform. All of that was just a, an idea. But what it was was a story that my wife and my six-month-old daughter could live into. And what I was trying to do was say, okay, we're going we're gonna to start a family. What would be the coolest place you could possibly grow up in to realize that you can change the world? And we dreamed up this house and an event space in the backyard and a guest house where writers come. Right now, a couple writers are upstairs. One of them wrote a book about the lead up to the Iraq war. We had a great dinner last night, talk about it with some people. It's just a place where wonderful conversation happens. Well, you say, Don, that sounds so special and so magical. It was just an idea, right? And then you start doing things toward it. Another one is uh, something called Build the Middle Class that will exist by the end of the year. And basically, it's a petition that people can sign. It says, we are asking Republicans and Democrats to come together and pass eight pieces of legislation on tax reform, education reform, immigration reform, and so on and so on. Immigration reform launched yesterday. And then that's it. I I don't have any time. I've got 30 years left in my life, and then I'm dead, and I will never come back to this planet. So I have 30 years left, and if somebody comes and says, Dom, we'd love for you to do a TV show, I look at my eulogy, and I say, there's no TV show on here. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I've got three stories, and I'm going to live these three, and I don't have time to switch gears right now. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. I want to talk to all you employers out there, and let's talk about company culture. At Yap Media, we have a super unique company culture. We are all obsessed with excellence, and we even call ourselves this really cute name, Scrappy Hustlers. We're all Scrappy Hustlers at Yap Media. And my team is growing fast. And hiring is a pain in the butt, especially if you're looking for A players that are going to roll up their sleeves. But luckily, when it comes to hiring, I no longer feel overwhelmed by the search for the perfect candidate because I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed's matching engine always presents me with a pool of high quality candidates that match my job description to a T. If you're tired of drowning in your hiring pool, Indeed is here to rescue you. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging your candidates, making the entire hiring process a breeze. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that by 2030, over 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't even been invented yet? And that's why we need to acquire new skills and stay relevant and adaptable. By embracing lifelong learning, we can future-proof our careers and our businesses. That's why you've got to check out Economist Education. Economist Education provides online executive education courses tailor-made for professionals just like us, crafted by The Economist's own editors and special experts. 
Economist education courses are designed to sharpen your professional skills in key areas like data storytelling, critical thinking, sustainability, and so much more. I highly recommend checking out the Economist education course, Business Writing and Storytelling. It's packed with valuable practical advice on how to inform and persuade through writing reports, social media, presentations, and beyond. The best part, these courses are online, flexible, and self-paced, lasting anywhere from two to six weeks. You're guided by expert tutors. You'll dive into a mix of videos, podcasts, texts, quizzes, and weekly assignments. Plus, you'll get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. Economist Education provides access to online forums where you can network with peers around the globe. In a world where knowledge is power, Economist Education empowers you to lead the way. Economist Education is an incredible way to stay ahead in business. And I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course only available by going to my special URL, education.economist.com profiting, and then enter the promo code profiting at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com profiting and use code profiting. Again, this ends on March 31st. If you want 15% off, you've got to go to education.economist.com profiting and use promo code profiting at registration. Young and profiters, I actually have a nasty habit of ordering way too many groceries. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I've wasted so much food in the past and I felt really guilty about it, but now my conscience is clear with HelloFresh. Each week, I get ingredients shipped to me with step-by-step recipes. I get fresh, pre-measured ingredients that get me whipping up delicious dinners in no time. And then I reduce waste because you get exactly what you need and nothing else. I love trying new foods and HelloFresh has over 45 recipes and more than 100 seasonal add-ons to choose from every single week. It's so much fun to pick out my meals. It's easier than ever to find something that everybody in your family will enjoy. I personally like to stick with the basics when it comes to HelloFresh. I get their meat and veggies plan. I love the options they have for that. And trust me, it's cheaper than takeout and with pre-proportioned ingredients, you'll never waste money on excess food. And now Green Chef is owned by HelloFresh which gives me an even wider variety of meals to choose from. There's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and you can enjoy both brands at a discount with me now. Skip the grocery store and save time with easy, tasty recipes delivered to your door. Go to hellofresh.com slash profitingfree and use code profitingfree for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash profitingfree with code profiting free. Totally. I mean, I think this is such an interesting concept. I had Matt Higgins on the show. He was on Shark Tank. He's a big TV personality, big VC investor. And he also swears by writing a eulogy and then he reads it every day as well. I had Robert Greene on the show, huge successful author. He talks about the law of death denial. And it's very similar that if you avoid the thought of death, you lack urgency, you lack motivation. And this sounds very similar. So why does writing a eulogy work? Like, why do you think that that actually helps you get closer to your goals? Processing your own death does a few really wonderful things for you. And what I mean by processing is realizing that you're not here forever and that your story is, in fact, very, very short. One, as you mentioned, it creates a sense of urgency. I don't have time to sit around. I don't have time to take that frivolous meeting. I don't have time to, you know, whatever. I don't have time because uh, I, I only have a certain number of days left. 
thinking about our own death is the, I think, is just the basis of wisdom. And if you, do, if you say, Don, that's morbid, I don't think we should think about our own death. That's sad. I want to be really clear what you're saying. I, 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 you have the right to say that. Certainly you do. What you're actually saying is, I don't want to think about the truth. Just let that sit. I don't want to think about the truth. I want to live in denial. And, you know, death denial, as you mentioned earlier, is, is uh, something that does not, in fact, serve your life. 100%. So let's give my listeners something actionable to do. If, if we ask them to write their eulogy, how much time should they take? How long should it be? What are the elements of a really well-written eulogy? So the eulogy assignment that I give is not an actual eulogy assignment. It's not, it's not exactly what you want people to read uh, when you die or want people to say. I mean, certainly it is. But what it is is something you can read every morning to remind you what your story is about. Therefore, in my opinion, it should be short. And why should it be short? It should be short because if you have a seven-page eulogy, you will not read it every morning <laughs> because it takes too long. So mine is about four paragraphs. It takes me about 120 seconds to read it. And I actually and you read created, it every single morning. It's part of your morning routine. I, I, I spent $200,000 on a piece of software that keeps track of whether or not I'm reading my eulogy. That's how important this is to me. I, it's in a piece of software. If you go to mydailyplanner.com, yesterday, I've been doing this for years. Yesterday, we made it available to the public. So you can go, go to mydailyplanner.com. You can write your eulogy, your 10-year, 5-year, 1-year vision, your goal worksheets, and a daily planner page. It all, comes, it all comes together as a morning ritual that takes about 15 minutes. And um, right now, it came out yesterday. Right now, we have 85 people using it. <laughs> so, so it's me and 85 people who are doing this. But that's fine with me. I did it because uh, I think it's a life changer. And so it also... Very, very soon, within the next few weeks, the developers are adding a streak button. So it will keep tabs of how many days you've read your eulogy, period, and then how many days in a row you've read your eulogy so that you are, you know, that's gamified so that you would want to keep your streak going. And it's a super, super effective tool. But yeah, I've probably read it, you know, it's got to be thousands of times now. Well, yeah, fam, I hope this got you inspired to start thinking about your goals for the new year. And I hope you can take a tip or two from this podcast to get clarity on your goals and make them easier to manage and stick with. If you liked this Yap Snacks episode, you can go check out all of our full episodes with these incredible guests that you heard from today. Number 189 with Daniel Pink, number 179 with Jeff Spencer, number 181 with Katie Milkman, and number 153 with Donald Miller. All of these episodes are excellent. I highly recommend them. And if you listen, learned, and profited from this episode, drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or you can just DM me directly on Instagram. I actually read all of my DMs. So DM me and I'll most likely respond back or tag me in your story. Show me that you're listening to this show. Tag me in your story and I will re- post it. Again, that's at Yab with Hala on Instagram. You guys can also find me on LinkedIn. In fact, I recently broke 200,000 followers on LinkedIn. So shout out to my loyal LinkedIn community. What a wild ride it's been. This is your podcast princess and your LinkedIn queen, Hala Taha, signing off. <laughs>